You're listening to Gender Ed, a podcast created and hosted by Virginia Tech's Women's Center. Join us in celebrating the experiences, achievements, and diversity within our campus community. Our conversations will explore the intersection of gender and other identities, uncover topics on leadership, equity, well-being, and healthy relationships. Conversations in this episode may cover a range of topics such as sexism, racism, and other forms of discrimination or harassment. While I hope to have meaningful and relatable conversation, this podcast is not intended to provide therapy, legal counsel, or specific advice for meeting your unique needs around coping with personal or community trauma and discrimination. To report a bias incident, please contact the Dean of Students Office at 540-231-3787 or use the reporting form found at dos.vt.edu. If you are in need of identity-based support, connect with the Cultural and Community Centers at ccc.vt.edu or 540-231-8584. If you have questions, concerns, or needs related to your mental health and well-being, please contact Cook Counseling at 540-231-6557 for more information. You can also make an appointment for advocacy at the Women's Center via email to wcsupport at vt.edu or contact our office Monday through Friday 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. at 540-231-7806. Welcome. You're listening to Gender Ed, a production of the Women's Center at Virginia Tech. I'm your host, Katie, and I'm here with my colleague, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining us for our ninth episode. Today, we are talking with Dr. Manaya Pratt-Clark, Vice President for Strategic Affairs and Diversity. Dr. Pratt-Clark, Thank you so much for joining us. Can you start us off by sharing with our listeners a little bit about who you are and what your role is here with Virginia Tech? Sure, so it's Mena Pratt-Clark. I'm the Vice President for Strategic Affairs and Diversity, and I've been here at Virginia Tech for five years, leading strategic planning and helping the university to develop a strategic plan for its future, and also leading efforts around diversity, equity, and, and inclusion here. Thank you so much for joining us. We're so happy to have you as part of this discussion um, in celebration of Women's History Month, which is the whole month of March. Uh, And this year we're focusing on trailblazers, uh, women making history. And so as a part of this celebration, we wanted to talk with you um, as you are a trailblazer in academia and now here at Virginia Tech with all the initiatives that you've done for the community here. So we hope to talk to you about some of these paths that you have created and cleared and the work that you continue to do uh, for others and with others. So we wanna talk a little bit about some of your recent writings and and put this in context for our listeners as well. In, um, you document your mother's story of breaking paths and blazing blazing trails in your 2018 book, A Black Woman's Journey from Cotton Picking to College Professor. Um, It's clear that you come from a lineage of change makers and trailblazers. So how do you think that she, as well as your other um, family members and the values that surrounded you have influenced your own path, both in your career and in your personal life? So I think my um, parents and my mother in particular emphasize the importance of education and the importance of being credentialed as um, especially as women and women of color, um, people of color, a mark of legitimacy. And so the, the emphasis on education was a, a predominant one. Both of my parents had doctoral PhDs. My mother's degree is in social work. My father's was in nuclear physics. 
And so they were both faculty members for a period of time. So the value of the academy and higher education was instilled in my brother and I. But it was also my mother in particular instilled the importance of speaking up and standing for whatever values you hold dear and being able to speak up in the midst of opposition to have your voice be heard. And there are several examples in the book of her speaking up, you know, as an eight-year-old girl of challenging a white man who called her a boy, of speaking up in um, high school when she wasn't selected as the valedictorian, even though she had the highest, you know, grade GPA of speaking up and, and during her college career. And so this importance of voice and using your voice was also a value that she instilled. And I think the other value I would say is hard work and that um, I was told it was going to be twice as hard and I needed to work twice as hard to succeed, um, basically because of race, but also because of the intersection of race and gender and that I needed to accept that reality, that kind of burden of race and sex and be um, willing to do whatever it took to succeed. And so the importance of discipline, dedication, persistence and perseverance were key values that were instilled in me and, and guide me to this day. Uh, I remember reading um the introduction to your um, other work on um, critical race and feminism and um, seeing that you got up at 4 a.m. Um, to practice and that you played professional. I remember you telling me the first time you played professional tennis and I was like gobsmacked given all your credentials and your degrees and all the things that you do. It's just uh, it, when you talk about di discipline, it's very obvious that that has um, been a, a key facet in your life and your success. And I think that um, maybe some of our students and other folks um, in, the, in our communities might not be aware of how, just how broad your talents are. And when you talk about credentialing, one thing I noticed um, when you joined Campus Community is that not a lot of folks talked about your credentials. Um, that as you um, came into the community, a lot of folks defaulted to using your first name when you have a doctorate and a Juris doctorate. And um, this is a cultural issue here at Virginia Tech in some ways, right? And I'm wondering if you have any um, commentary you wanted to add about um, the importance of credentialing in your current work and how that's impacted you. Gosh, that's such a great question because I do think there's this tension for people of color and women and how we're referred to and what, what a culture, how a culture defines its, um, chooses to name people. And so Virginia Tech is very much a first person culture in many ways. And so, you know, when you defer to Dr. Pratt Clark or put the credential there, um, it, you don't wanna feel like you're an outlier. So if, if the culture is first name, then, you know, we can go by the first name. Um, but then it's, you're creating peer level relationships with individuals who may or may not be peer level. And so for, and then I had, when I came, I had these two titles. So I was vice president for strategic affairs and vice provost for inclusion and diversity and a professor of education. And to me, one of the most important titles is actually the professor of education because I'm a full professor in the academy and it was an intentionality on my part. I never had a traditional tenure track journey. And so my journey to the academy was very much 
parallel tracks of being a full-time administrator and then creating this a journey in the academy as a faculty member because it was about that legitimacy. I knew that to be respected and valued in the academy, I needed to be a full professor. But my career path was one of 100% administrative work at Vanderbilt University when I started my higher ed career. I was a compliance officer. I was the assistant secretary of the university and I was a construction lawyer. So I negotiated $500 million worth of construction contracts for the university. So it was all administrative. When I moved to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, I was an associate director of an affirmative action office. That's how I started my career there and gradually moved up. But in that associate director role, it was affirmative action, equal employment opportunity, disability advocacy. Um, and so at that time, I started teaching every semester. And it was usually at the law school, critical race feminism, critical race studies. And then it was also in the African-American studies department. I was teaching African-American feminism, African-American studies. And so for a period of almost six years, I taught every semester. And then that's when I published my first book, that you mentioned critical race feminism and education, a social justice model. And so I was working essentially 24 seven. I was trying to publish, I was teaching and I was doing a full-time job. And so when people introduce me that professor of education rarely gets mentioned, but that's the credential I'm almost um, most proud of because I know what it took and I know the power that it gives you in the academy and that protection of tenure and that legitimacy of your voice and ability to speak up when others may not be able to. That's so interesting. Thank you for asking that question, Katie, and thank you for sharing, uh, Dr. Pat Clark. And kind of on that same um, piece where we're talking about your experience in academia, academia and all the things that you have done, in your blog post, you have a website um, which hosts many, many things, but um, it's also a blog option for you. And so in a December post, you uh, titled the blog, The Lonely Only. So you reflected not only on those who have been the first um, here at Virginia Tech, um, but also the times that you've been the first. So including um, being the only black student in your undergraduate classes, uh, being the only black woman lawyer in your, uh, when you first started practicing corporate law, and then now being the only woman um, of color vice president here at Virginia Tech. These are definitely not easy paths, but you state it is a status that I've come to accept and embrace as part of my calling in the social justice work. Can you tell us a little bit more about those experiences and what led you to this conclusion? Sure. So I was raised, as I said earlier, both my parents were professors and faculty members and had doctorate degrees, which was relatively rare for the 1970s to have um, African-Americans to have that status. In fact, when my mom became a full professor, less than 1% of black women were full professors in the academy. And so that, in addition to my parents being in the academy, um, we were raised in a very small, almost exclusively white town called Normal, <laughs> ironically, Illinois, um, where Illinois State University was. And um, we were raised to, we took piano lessons, violin lessons, and tennis lessons. And so we had a certain class privilege, even though we weren't wealthy. And, but that privilege was also embodied in all white spaces as African, literally, my father was born in Sierra Leone in West Africa. And so is a Sierra Leonean. Um, and then my mother is a descendant of enslaved Africans. And so this 
African legacy and blackness immersed in an all white environment has been my life. And um, I was graduating class of 388 students in high school. I was the only black students in my high school. And so professional tennis career is predominantly white. Classical music environment is predominantly white. And so my life experience in many ways has been one of being a black person, black woman situated in whiteness. And so understanding that um, identity, my identity and background then came with certain expectations and responsibilities and burdens, if, if I may say so. And um, so I just had to accept that. And, and I think that because the study, the, the disciplines I chose to study, which basically were law and sociology, even though my initial background was in English and literary studies, I moved into law and sociology, gave me a certain perspective about people and class and culture and gender and studying society and, and social structures to understand how to succeed in that work. And I guess I would say that I've realized that social justice is unpopular work. It's, it's disruptive work and it's work of disrupting the status quo in society. And you have to have a certain mindset to do that type of work. And often it is standing alone sometimes. You can't always stand alone to do that work, but sometimes initially you have to stand alone as you try to build community and collaboration and, and the support for a particular position. And that lonely only is the recognition that yes, sometimes you have to stand alone and sometimes it is lonely but you're always aware of the larger call. And so that article was reflecting on Urban Pedro, who was the first black student to attend Virginia Tech who couldn't even live on campus. He lived a mile and a half away with another family. And every day he's walking not only to class, but home for lunch, back after lunch, and then home at the end of the day. And that loneliness of trying to create a path for others when you're a trailblazer creating a path that the path is not there and you're creating it. And so I just think of every step that he took every day trying to build that path now for, you know, 8% of the entering class this fall to be African-American students. So if we don't have people who are willing to be the lonely onlys, then you don't have anyone. And those of us who are privileged and prepared for this work have to be willing to, to step out there alone sometimes. Yeah, I like that parallel of that social justice work is often very um, lonely and a little bit ostracized because you're disrupting what people consider the norm and making that parallel between being the lonely only almost gives you a little bit of an advantage because you're, I'll say, comfortable in that position, whether you actually are comfortable or not. Well, I also love this, one of the last pieces that you said, about being privileged and prepared. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's really um, important and powerful. And I wonder how does one become prepared for this work? Um, like you have a very, you, you talk, just talked about your unique path towards preparation, which was not necessarily of your own choosing. Um, and so what does it look like for folks who wanna join this work potentially to maybe think about becoming prepared to do this work? I think it, it, it's on multiple levels. So one is the intellectual level 
it's it's studying. <laughs> you've got to read stuff. You've got to question. You've got to understand, and you've got to develop the words. And that's for me what I loved about my education journey is I started off in in English, which was just loving reading and words and writing and the way people put things together. But I minored in philosophy, which gives you questions. It forces you to question the world and to think about, is this so and why is this so? I mean, philosophy is always about the why and seeing can you connect the why and the how of things. And so moving into law school and then it's this didactic questioning of, you know, the Socratic method, who, what, where, why, and, you know, it's gray. So I loved law school because it taught me that it's not everything is black and white, but it's gray. So I always look for the gray. And then sociology opened up this whole other way of thinking about people and society and power and positionality. And so the, the intellectual preparation, I can't underscore that. The, the, the work of studying and seeking knowledge, whether it's through a formal process of getting a degree or it's informal and it's conversations with other people and it's in different spaces and you know different places that you're gonna gather this this information and this knowledge because knowledge is power and it gives you words and it gives you vocabulary and it helps you to formulate thoughts that can sound somewhat intelligent <laughs> because you, you feel confident that you have a training. So one is to be prepared, you have to have this intellectual preparation. I'm really convinced about that. But you also have to have a mental preparation. Like your mind has to be able to synthesize different perspectives and ideas and to be emotionally prepared to calm your spirit. So this emotional mental capacity of the work, you can't get upset at everything. You can't get upset at everybody. Yeah, you calm yourself down. Okay, what's important here? Let me get my words together and let me say, get my emotions under control. So the mental, emotional component, mental maturity, People often talk about your social emotional piece. That's also important, but your mental maturity, I, I, I think is huge. And I, we don't talk enough about this, but I do think that whatever somebody's spiritual grounding is, is, is really important. So the lens that you use to engage with the world, whether it's faith or religion or spirituality also has to be mature enough that you have a place to, to stay grounded and a way of staying grounded as you do this work that is ungrounding work. I mean, you're uplifting, you're unearthing stuff continually and it, it can be very um, unsettling. And so you're constantly needing to find ways of grounding and settling your spirit because I think in many ways it is, we call it social justice work, but I think in many ways it's deeply spiritual work involving humanity. And, and our identities and how we engage with the world and engage in society. And so that level of preparation of your intellect, your mind and your emotions and spiritually, I think are really important. And people use the word self-care a lot, but I don't think we really fully understand the magnitude of what it means to care for yourself and prepare yourself to be in a battle with um, ideologies and ideas and almost invisible energy in the world manifested through people to try to create change. It's, it's, it's a very difficult process and difficult work. And 
if you're not prepared, then you get easily discouraged, you get disheartened, and you're like, you know, I just can't do this. And and people, some not everybody should do it. And so some people just kind of check out. It's like, you know, I'm not doing that work anymore. And then there are those of us who see it as a calling and don't feel that we have a choice to check out who have to continue to engage. I mean, there were a lot of folks during the George Floyd new civil rights movement. It's like, you know, I'm tired of white people coming to me and asking me how I'm doing and I don't wanna have conversations with them. But I, I understand that on one hand, but I think if we don't have people of color who are willing to engage in conversations with white allies, then you, you're not building that community and you will be the lonely only <laughs> still. So you, yes, maybe you need a break, you need a pause, you need to figure out your spiritual practices, your intellectual practices, how you ground yourself emotionally and mentally. But I, I very much believe we've got to stay on the battlefield of this work. Katie and I have had many a conversation here and just with each other about this, this self-care and how it's become very capitalized and monetized. Um, but I really love that you framed it as grounding of like, especially when we're talking about social justice work, there's a lot of times where your emotions may be all over the place, whether that's anger or sadness or joyfulness or whatever the case may be. Um, do you mind sharing some of the things that you have found helpful to keep you grounded? Sure. Um, well, one, I think your physical practices of healthy eating is really important. So what you eat, what you drink, the volume of water you choose to <laughs> drink every day and seeing it as a source of life and a source of energy. Um, as Katie mentioned earlier, I grew up playing tennis before school every morning and waking up at four, 4.30. So I value that early morning time. I think it's a deeply powerful time to ground yourself spiritually and to gain energy from different spiritual texts. And I think that, I mean, I play tennis, so that physical exercise, but during the summer when people weren't really engaging and the pandemic was still, even though no one really knew what was happening in the world, I started on going on very long walks and I found them to be very therapeutic and very affirming in terms of creating that space for just thoughts to flow without being constrained. And I don't think we've emphasized the value of walking <laughs> enough. And certain, you know, Buddhist monks or Buddhist religions talk about just almost walking without walking, just that lightness of trying to move through the world without making an imprint and not stopping in the world but just actually gently moving through the world and trying to think about what matters and why. And so it creates an interesting space of reflection that, and you'll get different ideas. You know, sometimes I'll get ideas for books or a blog post. And I spent a lot of time really trying to write more blog posts. And then I started, you know, last November, a, a new sort of component in my blogs, which is a matinee program. It's called Men is Matinee. And an integration of music into sort of reflections on, so it's musings and music and a way of integrating those two different ways of thinking about the world. So for me, it's, it's, it's never one thing because I think you have to draw strength from multiple sources. But for each person, I think you have to spend that time reflecting, what do I need? What, what will encourage me in the work? And I firmly believe in the importance of friends and 
touching base with your friends, calling them, checking in with them. Sometimes it's, we, I think people get a little too caught up in, I'm always calling Sally. Yeah, but does Sally talk to you when you call her? Yeah, we have great conversations. Well, I'll keep calling Sally. And just because it seems like it's one way doesn't mean it's not. And so I'm a firm believer in engaging and being in community with people you've known a long time. And I have a lot of friends that I've known for a long period of time and um, friends that are I've known for shorter periods of time, but that engagement with friends and family, I, I think is vitally important, especially during the pandemic where everybody became so much more isolated and, and so much more constricted into your own home and into your own space. And so if you didn't, if you weren't aggressive in reaching out to your family and friends, then you became even more isolated. And so for me, it's a series of making time for those practices that are vitally important. Thank you for sharing that. It actually leads kind of right into one of the last um, planned questions we have for you, which is there are a lot of folks, um, junior faculty and staff in our community, students in our community, who are still working through being the first and only in their scholarship, in their work, in their passions. What advice would you give, particularly to those young women and women of color um, in those specific experiences, um, given um, having moved through them yourself in the past? I think it's important to often go back to why. Why are you in this program? Why are you doing this work? Why are you interested in this scholarship? And if you have to create a vision board or a poster that has your why up there because X, Y, and Z, that is your constant reminder. I'm in it for something bigger than myself and I'm, I'm contributing to this larger cause. The, the why are you in this work? Why are you in this profession? Is, is an important question to remain at the forefront because if the why is not strong enough, that's fine, get out of that. <laughs> Right. If the, if the job is not fulfilling and you're unhappy and your why is like, I'm not happy, you know, I'm not doing my why, then that's that's fine. That's a revelation. And then act on it. I remember there was a time in my life where my profession and passion did not align. So I was doing a job and then I had my passion on the side. And so I'm going to the job and it's not fulfilling. The why is not being answered in the way I would like. And so my why became this passion. So I'm teaching at a prison. I'm teaching English and grammar to men and women who are incarcerated. And it's extraordinarily fulfilling. And then I'm going to this job where I'm making money, but it's not fulfilling. And so I realized that I was growing in my discontentedness between my profession and my passion. And I needed to get to a place and space where my profession and passion aligned. And so when you're struggling, you, you do have to say why, you know, and, and who do you want to be? What do you want to accomplish? I'm a firm believer in setting goals, aspirational goals, but sort of big, bold things that you hope to achieve. And then to ask yourself, am, am I on a path to do that? Maybe, yes, good. But then if things are not lining up, it's okay to shift. And I think uh, not enough do we ask ourselves those hard questions and answer them honestly and then make a change. We just get stuck in the, oh, well, you know, this is my paycheck. And I mean, you know, and we're unhappy. And I think the life journey is, is too short for that. And the needs are too great for people to not be fulfilling their potential. And so I'm very much an advocate of individuals assessing their own potential for greatness 
for actualizing their purpose and then asking themselves, am I doing that? Is the place and space that I'm in and the work that I'm doing helping me to actualize my potential to help others actualize their potential? And if, if it's not, let's, let's figure out a way of shifting. You don't have to just up and quit your job today, but you better start looking you know, for another one. <laughs> or you start doing things outside of your job and you're growing your passion in other ways. You're forming relationships, you're networking so that they can align. Because I, I think my advice is this persistence, that the, the level of discipline that you need to have in whatever way to make a difference in your work, you, the discipline doesn't feel painful if, if it's a, for a cause you care about. Then it's just work. You're excited to get up early. You're excited to be in that place and space and do the work. And so if, but you have to have the discipline. So if, you, if you're not motivated to do that, then find something else. But surround yourself by people who can encourage you. And when you do feel discouraged, you know, that's when these friends or your community is important. It's like, hey, today I just can't, you know, today I don't want to. And then those folks remind you, but it's like, remember your why, you know, your why is you want to make a difference in the world or your why is you want to become a scholar of this and they can help you because we can't do it all alone. I'm, I'm very much a supporter of advocate of being in community with, with people. And so that's my advice is remember the ask yourself hard questions, answer them authentically, and then change if you need to. Be courageous to do something different. And it might be small steps. It doesn't need to be the big bold, I'm going to carry a placard outside today and protest, you know. But you look at the woman who, you know, Greta Thunberg, I mean, she was a one woman. It's like, I'm unhappy. I'm going to sit out here and I'm going to protest the environment. I don't care if anybody. I mean, that was a lonely only if I ever saw one you know, and I'm going to do this because this is what matters to me. And so if you know, and your passion is that strong, then you're able to stand and you're able to keep going. And eventually people come along beside you. Absolutely. I love that too, especially uh, maybe for our students who are listening. Uh, there's a lot of pressure to get that first job as well. And uh, your first job may not be your forever job. It's likely not your forever job, but making sure that your job is leading to what you're passionate about. Because I had a similar experience, but when we moved here, I took a job. I was like, I can do this job. I don't care about this job, but I can do this job. And I couldn't after a while. I was like, I have no passion for this. I don't want to show up every day. And that passion is more of a motivator than a paycheck at the end of the day. And so for the students who are listening to remember your why and your passion points as you are looking for those first jobs and transitioning out of Blacksburg or maybe within the community even um, of what that means and how powerful that actually is. Like, yes, money does make the world go round and that is an essential um, piece into our society, um, right, wrong, or indifferent. Um, but staying true to who you are and what you believe in is um, more important at the end of the day. So I love those words. Is there anything that we haven't prompted or asked about that you would like to talk about related to your, your journey and your work as a trailblazer, whether here or in the past? You know, I guess the only thing I would say is I would encourage more women to reach out and people of color to reach out to other women who are doing the work that they're interested in. I think we're always hesitant to approach, quote unquote, a stranger, but most strangers are receptive to being approached to say, you know, your path is interesting. I'm, I'm interested in learning more. I, I just don't think we reach out enough. And then our circles are very small. Mm -hmm. And this world, as it works, is a very network connected world. It's who knows you, who do you know, who are you connected to? 
And I, I think we have to just become a little bit more courageous in reaching out to those who are doing a job or a profession or work that we're interested in to say, how did your path lead you that way? And you know, you never know where an opportunity may arise from those connections. Because a lot of times when people are hiring, they're actually thinking about who do I know? It's just, you know, okay, you put out the open, the ad, and you see what's coming in. But if someone says, hey, so-and-so is looking for a job and you trust so-and-so, you know, then you're more likely to draw on these connections. And I just don't think women are quite as aggressive and um, willing to be a little bit more bold in reaching out to other women and men who are in positions or professions that they're interested in and, and just introduce themselves and connect. And college is such a great place for that. So you got all these professors, you have all these you know, labs and all these directors, and there's just a lot of people who are basically here for students. They're here for this education space. And sometimes we feel intimidated just going to a professor's office hours, but you know, that's the best thing. That's the best way to get to know them and just say, hi, I'm Jane. And I just wanted to learn more about how you became professor so-and-so and that professors love to talk about themselves, but in the process, they'll get you to talk about yourself. And I just don't think that women, students of color develop relationships with others and faculty members on college campuses. I don't think enough students are courageous enough to join the you know, hiking organization or whatever organization that's a little bit outside of their comfort zone. They're interested in it, but they don't know anybody. And so they default to what's familiar. And I think more of us need to default to what's unfamiliar and to step outside of our social zone to, you know, be the African-American person that goes to the Asian Student Association meeting to meet other Asian students. I just, we're too siloed and comfortable in this our sameness and the more we can encourage students to bridge especially in college it's just one of those rare spaces where there's a whole bunch of different things going on because once you get outside of the college environment your world narrows in an odd way it's the job and it's not a community so much but in college you can just join a bunch of different organizations and be part of the world in really interesting ways and meet dynamic people and I would just like to encourage more students to be bolder in their fearlessness in exploring the world. And college is one of those sacred, safe, unique spaces to do that. Thanks so much for joining this conversation, Dr. Pratt Clark. It's been really great um, to learn more about you and hear some of your wisdom and advice. And we really hope our audience has enjoyed the time as much as we have. We have a lot to look forward to this semester, and we hope that you continue to listen to our podcast and engage with us virtually. Make sure to check out our Women's Month calendar to find events happening all month long on campus and in the community at womenscenter.vt.edu forward slash WOMO. That's womenscenter.vt.edu forward slash W-O-M-O. Dr. Pratt Clark, do you have any upcoming events that you would like to remind everyone of? Sure, um, we have these unfinished conversations and making the chair fit conversations. And so on March 5th, we'll have a making the chair fit conversation with Latina leaders on campus. So I'm really excited about that. And then on March 12th, we'll also have a conversation on principles of community. It's part of principles of community week. And so we'll have a conversation with individuals who have won the principal of community award. So I just encourage everyone to look on our YouTube channel, the inclusive 
inclusivevt.vt.edu is our website, but it's the Inclusive VT YouTube channel for those upcoming episodes. And then I'll just do a little plug for Mena's Matinee. It started in November and we have every month, usually once a month, um, we have just a program. Last month's was on um, an African-American love story, looking at the intersection of what it means to be an African-American in today's society. And so the first Sunday, new episodes come out and that's on my YouTube channel, Mena Pratt-Clark. Thank you. This has been episode nine of Gender Ed, a podcast from the Women's Center hosted by Katie and Ashley. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you join us next time. 